Welcome back, everybody. You listen to another episode of Drive Into the Basket. I am Mike. I hope you are doing super, super well today. Posting on Thursday, and my goodness, I feel like uh, sometimes I just make a habit of explaining away why I'm uh, late and posting episodes. Actually, uh, believe it or not, I do feel pretty guilty when I'm when I'm late past the usual Wednesday morning time. Uh, well, I was planning on recording on Tuesday nights, felt a little bit down in the dumps after the game and didn't want that to, to bias, you know, what I, what I spoke about. So, uh, decided to record on Wednesday morning and post then, uh, after which I made the spectacularly ill-advised decision of exercising at 1130 at night and got an absolutely horrendous night of sleep. Uh, just a little bit of background. This isn't really much background. I've got an awful issue with perfectionism and this isn't. Like, uh, you know, in a job interview when you're asked what your faults might be in as, as an employee and you're like, oh, I, I want everything to be perfect. I care too much. It's kind of for me that if I don't feel like I can do something like at a really high level, sometimes I just won't get started on it until I feel like I can do that, which may have happened or who knows, maybe I just wouldn't have been able to put out really very good, uh, a very good product yesterday at all. So anyway, here I am. All that aside, uh, let's talk Pistons. So uh, let's speak on big picture stuff just a little bit and this isn't by any means going to be a doom and gloom episode i try not to do those in the first place but i get that a lot of pistons fans are feeling very frustrated right now and i have my share of frustrations as well and this is the thing sports are are, are what anybody makes of it there, there's no right or wrong way to be a sports fan and so don't let anybody tell you that you shouldn't be frustrated. I mean, if you feel frustrated, you feel frustrated. And we Pistons fans have had a very long road. You know, whether you have just been watching since, uh, for example, the Pistons got the, the first overall pick and took Cade. I mean, it was a super exciting moment. Uh, you know, hope, hope for it to be a turning point for the franchise, and it may still be. Or whether you were watching from the Blake Griffin days when he had that big season in, in 2018-2019. You know, they're the best season that Piston has had since Grant Hill in, in the early 2000s. Or was that the late 90s? Or if you've been watching since the Van Gundy era, uh, which had, you know, one sort of good point when it looked like the Pistons were really, uh, you know, on their way to becoming a decent team. They were super young with, uh, with an exciting core. And of course, that went down the tubes. Or if, you know, my goodness, uh, you've been watching since the late stage Dumars era or even before that, there has been a lot of frustration and precious little excitement and, of course, very, very little success for for a long time. It's been more than 15 years, uh, well, 15 calendar years since the Pistons last won a playoff game. That was against the Boston Celtics in 2008, and that was um, about... Four months before the Chauncey Billups trade. So, and just even in the last few years, I mean, it's been a rebuild. There's been a lot of losing toward that end as, as the Pistons have been focusing. I mean, they, they deliberately bottomed out, which exactly, which is exactly as they should have done, in my opinion, to try to build through the draft. And there have certainly been times in the, uh, the these teams have not been built to win for the last three seasons. They've been built to have a lot of youth and you know, if they end up winning, and I know we were told in 2020 uh, before the start, or was it in 2020 or, yeah, okay, excuse me, I don't know what I'm saying. Of course, it was in 2020 before the start of the 2020-2021 season that the Pistons would have been fine making the playoffs organically in the next few seasons, but it was not their goal. A high draft position, of course, was the goal that if everything had come together and the Pistons were suddenly a playoff team, I'm sure, uh, you know, with with, uh, with potential, I'm sure the org would have been thrilled, but uh, I would guess that they judged that to be a very low probability. 
so these teams were not built to win. That was not the priority. Uh, boozing, I'm sure, was something they knew would be happening a lot of. And then, then that was a good thing because you wanted those high draft odds. And this has just been the situation for the Pistons over the last three seasons. And, it, you know, it can get wearing absolutely when it's enjoyable to watch your team win. And this rebuild is happening for a purpose. The losing is for a purpose. The not focusing on just a mad dash toward being a team that can maybe make the first round or the second round, possibly, like the Pistons have been doing, had been doing for a long time, absolutely has a purpose. Uh, but it's been a long time. I mean, we're about to enter the, f well, excuse me, we're just getting to the end of the fourth calendar year of the rebuild, which really kicked off at the beginning of 2020. And I know that there was a lot of anticipation the last three seasons. For example, let's, you know, let's see what Cade can do in, in that first rookie, in his rookie season. And at the beginning of that season, of course, was frustrating because he came in completely cold because he had missed the vast majority of training camp. He had missed all preseason. He was not in game shape and he was coming into the NBA, uh, you know, as a rookie for his first action. And it took him a little while to get up to speed, really honestly, about six weeks until like close to the end of November before he came online. And uh, I mean, I think that there was no real hope of the Pistons being anything like a playoff team in that season. Again, still very young, still much more potential than actual, uh, you know, production in the now. And I actually know, I remember Cade saying in that, at the end of the season that he thought the Pistons were going were to were make the playoffs that season. He didn't realize how hard it was to win in the NBA. But we certainly saw flashes in the late, uh, late stages of that season. Uh, of just uh, a lineup that that hopefully you know had some you know had a good future ahead of it, and then we came into the next season. Uh, things go you know there's a lot of excitement about that season. Things go wrong pretty quickly. You know, Kate only played 12 games, and and then he's out for the season. And just the team doesn't really have a ton of firepower. Things start slow. The season really devolves into like not altogether that enjoyable to watch, particularly you know in the late stages of the season. And the Pistons, I think, won, I don't know, like four or five games, you know, out of, out of the last 41. And that was tough. And then we come into this season. There's a lot of excitement. Cade's back, you know. Ivy's going to his second season. There was a lot to like about, about what he did uh, in his rookie year. And, you know, Sar Thompson is in. And, you know, you bring in Monte Morris. You know, you've got what looks like a, you know, decent roster. Like, decent is, is relative in this sense. But, you know, let's, let's see what Cade can do. Let's see what Cade and Ivy as a parent can do. we got a new coach. We've got some good veterans on the team. You know, Sar Thompson, let's see what he can do. And then we come in, and there's a 2-10 and 10 start. Cade is struggling. There's been, you know, some controversial usage of Ivy. And it's just losing again and again. You know, we're starting 2-10 and 10 here. And, and I completely get why there's a lot of frustration right now. And I'm feeling a certain degree of frustration as well, largely about the coaching. But I think it's worth contextualizing all of this. Um, and like I said, I'm not disputing why anybody would be frustrated at what's going on. I mean, there's a certain amount of fatigue in this equation as well. That just that this has been going on for a while. And it's like, how long should a rebuild last? What should we expect? And, and I'll get to, to talking about, about management a little later in this episode. But here's the thing about the season. It's been 12 games, and that's, you know, that's a significant portion of the season. I feel like it can almost feel like these last years are just blending together. Like this was just, it has been one extremely long season of the team losing a ton of games. 
so that when we get to this point and the team has another slow start, it's like uh, it just feels like more of the same that that's just been happening over and over again. And you know, to a degree, that's accurate. Uh, to another degree, uh, it's still very early in the season. Yes, the team is missing some key veteran players. Cade is coming back from an injury that had him out almost all of last season and, and required surgery, of course, season-ending surgery. Uh, he's going to take, I think, some time to get up to speed. Um, you know, uh, Doran has been out uh, after a very strong start to the season. This is just my speculation, but I feel like he did not look the same after he tweaked his ankle. And I don't know why they were even playing him game after game when he didn't look good at all compared to he just did not look like himself. So in any case, uh, you know, he started falling flat. Now he's out until presumably until he gets better. Um, but that's a loss. Um, Ivy has been out. You know, Alec Burks, you know, for better or worse, that, that's that's one of the, the shooters in the lineup. The Pistons have been without three of their best shooters in Boyan and Burks and Monte Morris. This is a team that could be significantly more respectable. Uh, circumstances just haven't been very kind to this stage. You can also look at the coaching, which I, I think Monty Williams, who is no fool, has, for whatever purpose, making a point or whatever else, been doing things that are not really conducive to winning. Like, what's the, the backdrop for this season, let's say? We went in being told that this was going to be a season in which the Pistons were going to prioritize winning. I, I think that that was kind of relative because development was always going to be a big part of this season. I think that was... I think it was more just that the Pistons weren't going to sacrifice as much uh, for the sake of development, sacrifice as much for winning. And, and excuse me, let's put it. So let me put that more clearly. weren't going to sacrifice winning as much for the sake of development. Now, at this stage, I mean, the notion that they're prioritizing winning at all is kind of a farce, based on based on how Monty is coaching, particularly with his lineups, particularly with the starting lineup. Which again, I've, I've talked about, uh, I think it was a couple episodes ago, and then I'll go over a little bit more uh, later in this episode. But that part is frustrating too. It, it's like he is doing things for whatever the purpose is. I don't think it's because he's an idiot by any means that are actively working against the team winning. And, you know, the, the frustration for that, I think, is, is again just multiplied by where where the rebuild stands. It's, it's been the primary frustration for me this season so far. I uh, just, you know, when is enough enough with this, whatever point he's trying to make. So uh, my point is, though, when, when it comes to this season, uh, I think what's happened so far, like the injuries and, and Cade struggling and whatever, I mean, things shouldn't be treated as an excuse, but they, they are factors. These are, these are relevant factors. It is still very early in the season. We are about one-eighth through it a little bit more than an eighth. And while it may, it just, I think it feels a whole lot longer because of how it has been for the Pistons, you know, just because of how long this rebuild is, has been and, and how long it's been since the Pistons were really winning games. But there's plenty of season left. And though I think the Pistons have, you know, in terms of, and I know that I'm, I'm on the, I've always been on the fringes of this and thinking that if everything came together, the Pistons could maybe challenge or maybe make the plans this year. I think you lose this many games early on that that possibility is substantially less at this stage. Um, but things, we could see a considerably more enjoyable product uh, in the not so distant future, hopefully. So uh, just something that uh, I think is, is worth thinking about that it's been pretty bad so far. I don't think that's going to last a great deal longer. 
Um, I could be wrong, but I, I think that we will see the product improve. Even if I would say it's fairly unlikely that the Pistons are going to be a good team this season. I mean, I, I think that's an expectation that's, that I think would be kind of outside the bounds of what we have evidence to support. Uh, I think that we will see, at the very least, a significantly more enjoyable product in which the team is not uh, you know, having struggles on a game-by-game basis and, and winning very, very few games. I think the Pistons at this stage, if things have been different in terms of injuries and, and, and in terms of the rotations, though who knows what the starting lineup would have been if Monte Morris and, and Boyan had been healthy. Uh, though, I mean, there would have been uh, an effect on lineups in, in general. That's just uh, some, some very useful talent to have on the team. It's having the floor, rather. Uh, I don't think the Pistons would be would be a two and ten team right now. I think they would have squeezed out maybe three or four more wins. So, you know, stay the course. I, th- I think we'll see a better product on the floor pretty soon. Might not be a particularly good product, but I think it'll be a much improved product. So, uh, I've been asked to speak a little bit about Troy Weaver, who's in the fourth season of his tenure with the Pistons, and where he stands, and when. You know, is it now, or if not, when should it be in the future when Troy Weaver is potentially on the hot seat? Just, you know, in terms of when does his job, you know, when does his future with the Pistons in, in his position come into question? I don't think that what we've seen so far this season is, you know, is enough to, to hold against him. Again, we've had some slow starts. We've had some absences, you know, both uh, on the part of the, the veterans and, and some youth. Money Williams is doing his thing, whatever it is, and it's still very early. Also, I think that's that, that that's an operative thing. So, as far as when does Troy end up on the hot seat, I would say if the Pistons still haven't made substantial strides by the end of next season. Now, I think that some excuses perhaps are made for Troy that aren't necessarily reasonable. Like for one, like yeah, the Pistons did start out this this rebuild without much and i mean you look at the thunder who had an enormous amount of assets to trade away to kickstart their rebuild and the pistons didn't have anything like that you know they started out this rebuild with blake griffin's uh, deadweight contract and and just very very little veteran talent that they could trade away for draft stock or, or you know or for other young players and that's not ideal at the same time teams often don't start out with that much you take the rockets they really didn't start out with too much they actually, you know, owe picks to, I mean, they, they have picks from, uh, from the Brooklyn trade, you know, from, from sending uh, James Harden over to Brooklyn, but they also owe picks. The, the, those haven't been, uh, those haven't been owed yet. That's coming up this season. They also owe picks to the Thunder, the Russell Westbrook for Chris Paul. So, you know, future assets, they, they didn't really have much in the, in the way of tradable future assets either. And then James Harden was really the only guy that they, that they got any sort of return from. And then the Nets don't, I mean, they don't really have the the greatest in terms of uh, in terms of draft position. I think they'll continue to be a playoff team. So, just not starting with special assets. I I don't think that's necessarily uh, something to excuse if Troy Weaver is if the team is still really struggling next season. I mean, there has been some just straight bad fortune, like particularly in the way of Cade missing his sophomore season. You know, that's that's some development missed out on. That's some improvement missed out on. Uh, I'll tell you what really hurts for me for Troy Weaver and, and what really I think set this team back from the start was the 2020 draft, which originally looked weak, but has turned out to have some pretty strong talent. Now, uh, Troy ended up having three shots in the draft. He had pick number seven and traded for picks 16 and 19. He had access to some good talents. And frankly, the draft was a flop. 
you know, barring something very, very surprising happening with either Killian Hayes or James Wiseman. I mean, just basically the return on pick number seven at a future first that is tying up the team's draft picks at this point until 2029. And Luke Kennard and four seconds at this point is one role player. That'd be Isaiah Stewart. And maybe two if Killian really takes further steps, makes significant further steps. So yeah, that's that's the return. One role player and a great deal of missed opportunities. Now hindsight is twenty twenty. Sure. Uh, at the same time, if you are a general manager, you are an Ita- you are a talent evaluator. Your job is to find the right talent, and your job is to identify and obtain, you know, in this case, draft talent that other teams aren't. Like for example. You know, if we want to talk, use an example uh, who is very, very dear to Detroit sports fans, Steve Eiserman in Tampa. And I learned recently, by the way, that uh, that Ken Holland, when when Eiser want, excuse me, when Eiserman wanted to move into move up from uh, from assistant GM into um, a lead uh, general manager position, Mike Illich tried to promote Ken Holland basically out of the GM position, so that uh, so that Steve Eiserman, who went on to become, needless to say, an extremely successful general manager uh, with with the Lightning, could take over. Uh, Ken Holland's job instead and Holland said no and Mike Illich left it at that and Holland went on to just you know the rest is history to let the team atrophy Uh, whatever the case you look at Steve Eiserman who found very high level talent outside of the first round and uh, you know Nikita Kucherov for example in the second round even taking Andre Vasilevsky in the first round and taking goalies in the first round especially back then was not a common thing at all so it was uh, it was pretty rare that Eiserman would take a shot in the goalie in the first round, a shot in the goalie in the first round, and he found one of the best goalies of this generation. Uh, just just very very good. I think Braden Point was also a second round draft pick. Uh, he just found a lot of good players that that other teams did not identify. And if you want to be successful as a general manager, you have to target that talent. Other guys missed it too is not an excuse. You know, if, if you just want to say, well, we're fine with our GM being just kind of mediocre in the draft, uh, cool. But you want your GM to be actually good in the draft. And Troy Weaver had three chances in that draft. A lot of the, a lot of very good talent in that draft came after pick 19. But you even start with pick number seven. Now, was Killian Hayes an unreasonable pick? No, I argued for Killian Hayes back then, actually. Uh, drafts, I mean, I, we had access to even less uh, draft material than, than the teams did. Of course, that was COVID draft. Um, though I, I should say, even for my part, I thought that I wanted the Pistons to find their their, uh, their starting point guard of the future. Even I didn't think that Killian Hayes would be better than like, you know, somewhere in the lower end of the top ten in this position if everything cut right. We're talking everything more clever and getting to the basket, solid mid range game that would make it easier for him to get to the basket, strong three point shooting, of course, and hopefully that step back three that had people jokingly calling him French Harden before the draft. Uh, whatever the case, you you look at that taking Killian Hayes at number seven with talent that turned out to be much better on the floor. Even if we're just talking talent that was realistically going to be picked at, at that position, Tyrese Halliburton, of course, comes up. Halliburton, who could be argued as a top five point guard already. I mean, that was a, a major miss. I mean, that's a guy who could really have, have jump-started this rebuild and who liked the Pistons. And th- there were a bunch of teams which he did not want to go to. He wanted to go to a team where he could be a major piece. He could be, you know, a major part of helping build a team that had been struggling up into a contender. That's why his agent told several teams, I, I can't remember, there's a video in which he, he was talking about which teams that he was willing to go to and the other teams he did not want to go to and the teams he didn't want to go to. His agent made that very clear. That's why he ultimately fell to Sacramento. Detroit was one of the teams he was interested in playing for, so that's not the reason that they did not select him. They just wanted Killian Hayes. 
you look further, even like further on in the lottery, Devin Vassell has, who was actually taken before Halliburton. He's probably not the lead initiator the Pistons were looking for, but uh, he appears to have a strong future as a scorer. And you look further on outside the lottery, uh, guys whom Troy Weaver had access to three times. There was Desmond Bain, who is now one of the, the league's elite off-ball options in the absence of John Morant. He's averaging like 25 points per game. He's an elite shooter. The Pistons, he said, called him twice. So that almost certainly would have been for pick 16 and pick 19. Ultimately took Isaiah Stewart and Sadiq Bey. All respect to Stewart, whom I love. Uh, Desmond Bain is a better player than those two. So, you know, credit to the front office, credit to Weaver. They saw the talent. I think that almost makes it a little bit worse that they that they saw the talent and they ultimately decided on two safe pick role players instead. So that's a miss. And it's not, again, it's not like, well, he fell to number 30, so you can't blame him. Like, it's the job of the GM to, to hit in the draft, particularly, you know, outside of the upper reaches of a round. And so the front office identified Bain as a talent, you know, you know to their credit, I suppose, who was worthy potentially being taken in the middle of the first round, but they ultimately passed on him. You look further at Tyrese Maxey, who's having a fantastic season, a guy who, you know, you might think, and, you know, this could be a reasonable thing to say that, okay, they'd already drafted Killian Hayes, why draft another handler? Well, I mean, if you're drafting a guy at number 19, it's maybe not going to be the worst thing in the world, especially since, you know, the questions, can Maxey be, a, you know, a weed guard? And in fact, you know, he played very effectively next to James Harden while Harden was there. He was, he was a very effective off-ball player. So uh, Tyrese Maxey, who uh, looks like, you know, he has a very high ceiling in the NBA at this point. Had three chances at him. Had three chances at Bain. Even look like a, look at a guy like Jaden McDaniels, who is going, to, you know, looks like he's going to, you know, arguably, arguably already is, one of the, the elite 3 and D players in the league. Had three chances at him. Even guys like Emmanuel Quickly, whom you could argue is better at this point than anybody, than any of the three guys the Pistons drafted. It, it's just like Weaver had chances at very high-level talent that could have restarted, that could have kickstarted the rebuild, and that draft he blew. Even the secondary proceeds when you trade Sadiq Bay for James Wiseman, who hasn't even been able to crack the rotation on this team. You know who lost the the preseason battle to uh, to Marvin Bagley himself is is not a very impressive player and has looked terrible when he's been on the court. And who knows? Maybe the Pistons will will keep him on a cheap contract and ho- continue to hope that he will improve. There are a couple scary things. You know, when it comes to the talent evaluation, it also came out of this draft. Uh, like we we have heard, and again, we've heard this from you know Amari Senkov, and needless to say, a very reliable source that Weaver was, uh, excuse me, that Wiseman was at the top of Weaver's draft board in 2020. Uh, that's a little bit frightening. Um, part of me hopes that um, I guess I could just ask Omari about this, but I uh, uh, but I've yet to do so. <laughs> uh, part of me hopes that it was just okay. Wiseman is at the top of the board of guys whom. Weaver thought might be available at number seven. I, I doubt that's the case. Probably would have been specified. And also, Wiseman was pretty much going in the top three. I mean, that was just kind of a given. So does that mean that Weaver, if the Pistons had been picking number one, would have taken James Wiseman, you know, a very unproven center, over, you know, potential superstar talents like uh, like Anthony Edwards and Lamelo Ball, much more valuable positions? I hope not. We heard that he was a very big fan of Patrick Williams. Uh, Patrick Williams, who has amounted to nothing so far. Yeah, he did miss some time due to injury, but uh, that was just in his in his sophomore season. Uh, you know, he looked like he was kind of putting things together a bit last season. Was still just a ten point per game score. Granted, on a team with two very high usage players and in Zach Levine and in Demar Derozan, but you know, with the guy you pick number four, 
I do kind of want to see more than that by his sophomore season, by, excuse me, by his third season, and is really struggling this season. Again, very early on, but I know that, of course, the Bulls were, were looking for more out of him than him coming into his fourth season and starting out the season averaging six points per game on 33% from the field and 27, 27% from three. So those were teams, you know, those were guys whom he didn't draft, but whom he was interested in who have it just things have not gone well. I mean, they, they have not been good products in the NBA for what things have been different with the Pistons. Who knows? I, I think, who knows? But they, they certainly haven't looked good so far. So I, I've talked a bit about this. It, it's basically that there have been some opportunities that Troy Weaver has missed. You could argue that if the Pistons had drafted Howell Burton, you know, he wouldn't have had a chance at Cade. If Cade turns into a superstar player, then that will have had merit. But yeah, that, that just that part just hurt, and that, that's an example of some uh, of an, an area that he has blown. The Pistons, he he went on, uh, you know, he, he built a team that was in position to to have high draft lottery odds, and the Pistons ended up, you know, thanks to them being in that position, they they got that fourteen percent chance and get the first overall pick. And Cade was Cade was just the pick, you know, that was that was just Cade was going number one. I think that was that was absolutely the right call between his his abilities as a player and uh, and his capacity as a leader. But let's say the Pistons had gotten bad lottery luck, the likes of which they pretty brutally experienced this past summer. You know, who knows whom we'd be cheering for it, you know, with the Pistons selected at number six. And, you know, yeah, that would be bad luck, but it would be contingent in that situation for a general manager to make do anyway. You know, it, it would hurt, but you've if, if you want to build a contender out of nothing, you have to make some very adroit moves. It cannot just, uh, you know, uh, it, sure, it can be if you get accepting to just you get exceptionally lucky. It can be uh, just, hey, we're going to build through the draft exclusively. But let's say a lottery doesn't work out for you. Yeah, you've, you've just got to make some adroit moves on the side. And uh, let's look at Troy Weaver's reclamation projects. Unless you think that Marvin Bagley is going to make it, and I continue to see Marvin Bagley as a significantly less than a stats player with low IQ on both ends, can score ably around the basket, but isn't much of a creator, can't shoot, bad defender, doesn't pass, uh, gets bodied on the boards by, um, by, by a, lot of bigger, a lot of centers who are bigger than he is, does a pretty poor job of boxing out sometimes, and gets pushed around down low again by, by beefier centers. Unless you think that he's going to be a success, every one of Troy Weaver's reclamation projects has flopped, or unless we see major improvement from James Wiseman. Um, he's made some good trades, you know, like, uh, for example, like Jeremy Grant for Jalen Durham was great. Grant costs nothing but cap space. Jalen Durham looks to have a high ceiling. Uh, thanks, Charlotte, by the way. Uh, thank you, Michael Jordan, for, for going with with Williams instead. You know, he's, Jordan was always about the win now guy and uh, also didn't want to uh, have both of those picks because they wanted to save cap space or avoid the luxury tax, presumably. So, I mean, that that is one of those good moves that you want to make as a general manager. And again, he's made some good trades. Alec Burks, solid veteran. Boyan Bogdanovich, solid veteran. Monty Morris, solid veteran. Uh, these are guys who aren't really on the timeline for a successful team. Just my point is that let's say you get to the end of next season and things really still haven't improved and it's not due to circumstances outside of his control. At that point, you know, maybe he finds himself on the hot seat. And I would say he probably will find him on the hot seat if it's been five seasons of a rebuild and there still hasn't been significant improvement. At this point with, you know, where we're just 12 games into the season, and there have been some circumstances outside of his control, you know, the injuries uh, and some absences. No, I don't think he's on the hot seat at this point, nor do I think he should be. But ultimately, you do, in this position, have to produce some success. 
So if that still hasn't happened, if the Pistons are not on a significantly better trajectory by the end of next season, uh, I think that you might find the Pistons with a new general manager come 2025. But at this point, do I think he should be on the hot seat? No. Do I think he's necessarily done a great job? No. I think that he's done some things well and he's done some things poorly. And then as with uh, more or less any general manager, some things that have not gone well have, it should be noted, not been entirely in his control. Let's talk a bit about Cade. Hot button topic, of course. Uh, He is struggling to start the season. As I mentioned, I think it's worth noting that it's not easy to miss an entire season. Have surgery also that causes you to sit out an entire season. Have surgery that means that you cannot train, that you just really have to slowly get yourself. You can't like train for actual on-court action, you know, not full tilt action. You have to work yourself back slowly. And I don't know if, you know, if it feels different to have a metal rod now in your leg, I couldn't tell you. It's never happened to me. But it's not easy to miss a whole season. It's not easy to to have to basically get back into game shape fully on the fly. And who knows? I mean, he he hasn't really looked like himself mentally. I, I talked about that last week. I don't think that's going to last. Like he was, he's always been a little bit turnover prone. But as a rookie, he was nowhere near this turnover prone, and and just made better decisions and looked like he was playing more in control. I I think he gave it time. I think he I think his situation certainly. I just his situation, like I said, he missed an entire season and and he's having to get himself back into where he wants to be on the fly. Now, two things, because I've seen a lot of both sides of this argument. Number one, that Cade, you're just playing horribly. And the other, that Cade is playing in a terrible starting lineup that sets him up to fail. I think two things, I think uh, nuance, I think it's worth looking at a middle ground in the situation which is that, number one, yes, Kate is not being put into a position to succeed. The starting lineup is a complete abomination that should never have seen the light of day in the NBA. It has far too little shooting. It has far too little spacing. He's the only creator. It has far too too little athleticism as well. Um, Yeah, he's the only creator, and he gets swamped on his way into the interior every time because defenses know that he's the only creator. They don't have to respect his teammates as shooters, and they don't have to respect his teammates as off-ball movers. So in the starting lineup, yes, he's absolutely being put into a position in which he is going to struggle, and that's not helpful. Yes, it makes it, it, it makes it significantly more difficult for him to get to the basket. It makes him, it's significantly more difficult for him to operate in the interior in general, and it's far from ideal. So I'd say, yes, that is true, certainly. I'd also say that Cade, of his own accord, just needs to be better. He is not playing particularly well. He started off shooting well from the perimeter. That's fallen off. He is not, you know, he's struggling in many situations to get to the basket. Again, I know that uh, the spacing is, is an issue there, but he's also just not doing a particularly great job of it. He's not shooting well overall. He is making a lot of, of just bad passes, frankly, just bad passes that he was not making as a rookie. So just the scoring has been below par. Again, if he had spacing, it would be a lot easier for him to attack the basket, but the scoring is below par. The, the decision-making is below par. So I, I'd say both of these things are true. It doesn't need to be, oh, just Kate is terrible, period. Or not terrible, but Kate has been playing really badly, period. He is also being put into a very difficult situation, and for no reason. I'll, I'll talk about that in a bit. So I, I, I think that there's definitely middle ground there. And again, I think it's it's still easy in the season. Excuse me. I, I, and I, excuse me, early in the season, not easy in the season. And I know I've said that again and again, but I think it's it's worth keeping in mind. Now, if Kate is still struggling like this after 30 games, I might start to get a little bit concerned. If he's still struggling like this after 50 games, uh, you know, I'm going to start getting more concerned. 
though some guys it really takes until season four before they take off who knows but that's uh, not a worry I know that any of us want to have. Uh, one more thing about Cade. I was asked this by a listener about the level of his defense. So I think Cade is a smart defender. Uh, he's got got good size. He's got good length. He's not the most athletic, but I think that he can hold his own. And in you know, most matchups, he has looked slow to start the season. And again, could very, very easily just be a product of conditioning. And... I hope that improves because if he's already lost a step during that due to that surgery, I mean, he wasn't the, the most explosive in the first place, then there might be issues. But I think in terms of his instincts and, and his size, he can, yeah, he can hold his own in most matchups. I don't think, and, and yeah, I, I think we'll see, we'll see more of this. Uh, like we saw it as, excuse me, we'll see get more better data as the season goes on. And we saw in his rookie season, I think that he is just fine as a defender. And I think we saw in, in that truncated sophomore season that he is just fine as a defender. I think that he will be, uh, you know, again, provided he hasn't lost mobility. And I think it's vast. It's just far, far too early to uh, to conclude that he has, but, you know, by any means, you know, so if he's if he's got his his previous level of mobility, I think that he can be a slightly plus defender. You know, that's how I felt uh, since, you know, since he came into the league. And, and that's fine. If you're a slightly plus defender who's not a liability in any situation. Great. That's perfectly fine. You know, you'd love for every player to be a major plus defender, but that's, of course, I would say not particularly realistic. And if, if he can be that slightly plus defender, even just an even defender while carrying a very heavy offensive workload, then, you know, fantastic. You know, and I think that he can. Um, you know, just to just answer another question as to if how, you know, the amount of work that he's putting in on defense is compromising him on offense. Um, I would say not directly as such he really has been falling off particularly in fourth quarters where he just looks to be completely and utterly gassed just exhausted but i think that's just a a product again of just getting back into proper condition you know getting getting it returning his conditioning to where it should be A, a player at the age of you know at his age should not need to budget energy to you know to work hard on offense I mean, it's it's not like he's being asked to guard the the opposite, you know, chase around the opposition's best player to the you know to the maximum extent of his ability, and then you know, and then carry a super heavy load on offense. So no, I I don't think that's a factor when it comes to why he's getting gassed in the fourth. Again, I think he's still not back into you know 100% proper game shape. Monty Williams is also riding him really really hard, you know, to a fault. I mean, Cade is carrying an extremely heavy offensive workload. And I'll use this to uh, this opportunity to transition. Uh, I'll talk a little bit more about the coaching waiter, actually. But th- there have been times, especially in recent games, where it's like Kate is in the fourth. He's gassed. He's just he just does not have much left in the tank. He's struggling. Monty continues to keep him out in the floor. Monty continues to to put a very very heavy load on him. And yeah, he's basically the only creator at this point. But you know, why are you doing that? You know, is it to uh, you know try to make him grow as a player? I mean, again, it's another situation where you can be fairly confident that with how tired he obviously is and how much he's struggling, that he's not going to contribute to wins there. So that's been a little frustrating. All right, to my goodness, I'm already at almost 40 minutes. Uh, though in, in editing, I truncate out some silences, so it's probably like closer to 36. So uh, let's visit some other subjects. Jaden Ivey, who is back by what we've heard was very, very sick. And... Uh, but uh, didn't get many minutes in his first game back, got more minutes, and I believe finished the game against the Hawks. Uh, Jaden Ivey, I mean, again, it's it's early in the season. I know it's been very controversial that he's been brought off the bench. 
Uh, wait and see, give it time. But uh, Ivy certainly adds a dimension that this team utterly lacks. Number one, having a, a second real creator. Also, you know, an elite athlete who can create. Um, just the, the benefit of having a guy who can who can attack effectively off the drive, who moves very, very fast off the ball, who can catch it in flight and, and get to the basket very easily, uh, who is actually by no means half bad as a shooter uh, and is able to get himself open by moving very well off the ball. But just having that athletic creator, which is something that this team, you know, most teams have an athletic creator. Jaden Ivey is, is more athletic than just about anybody else in the, in the NBA. He's, he's a... Now, he is an elite athlete, put it that way. I'm not saying he's like a top five athlete in the league. That's uh, that's a pretty major distinction, but he is an elite NBA athlete. Uh, this team has still not many very athletic guys, let alone, you know, the highly athletic guys who can actually handle the ball. That is a conspicuous absence on the team. And so Jaden Ivey just, uh, you know, particularly think about, you know, replacing Killian in the starting lineup with Ivy. It just adds a, a dimension to the starting lineup, which has, is lacking in all sorts of areas on offense that uh, that it wouldn't have. So it's been good to see him back. He's certainly putting in the effort on defense. Uh, he has, I would say, a high defensive ceiling, just given that he's, um, he's strong, he's long, and he's highly athletic. The question is, of course, the decision-making. But Jaden Ivey doesn't need to be an elite defender. You know, as long as he can be a reasonably good defender and provide what he provides on offense, then he'll be a valuable player. You know, just be a reasonably decent defender who is not a liability and who who can be counted on to make decent decisions on defense. And as I've said, I, even if I, Ivy has his struggles on defense this season, I'm not going to get concerned until, you know, partway through his third season. Uh, James Wiseman, I'll only bring up because I know there was a certain amount of frustration seeing Sadiq Bey come in with the Hawks and provide some value even though he struggled for most of the game and took a lot of the sort of dumb shots we saw him taking in his third season with the Pistons uh, and so providing you know defensive mistakes too and so providing some value versus James Wiseman who's providing absolutely none uh Wiseman like I said I wonder what the Pistons are going to do after the season do you give him like just a you know a, a two-year deal like a one plus one one plus team option at a very reasonable salary, just in the hope that, yeah, okay, maybe you can develop just given more time, given more seasoning. But my goodness, does Wiseman look bad? Uh, just still, you know, the, the guy does have a, a very good NBA body, you know, super long, moves pretty well when he is positioning himself properly and giving him the opportunity to, you know, to move to the right spots of the floor. It's very athletic and and so on but my goodness is his decision making still absolutely horrid and please 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 Monty Williams do not let the guy post up ever again so understand the frustration there that continues to be a bit of a befuddling trade I continue to wonder why the team just uh, why Bay went from you know very valued piece for the future of the team to to off the team and I can you know like what happened we didn't hear too much in the background and how much of it was really just wanting Sadiq off the team and him wanting an extension I don't think was, I can't think that was a significant factor because like, well, is he going to demand an extension or I want to be traded? Uh, that sounds pretty unlikely. He was not actually going to be a free agent until 2024. The Hawks did not give him an extension. So he's still going to be a free agent, whether they make him, make him a restricted free agent by, by giving the qualified offer, a qualifying offer or not. And uh, just, this is a slight A side. It's often it's just common parlance to refer to a player that's you know he'll be a restricted a restricted free agent and such and such. Uh, a player is not actually a restricted free agent until he gets the qualifying offer. So how much of it was actually Weaver just having a chance at acquiring James Wiseman, a player whom he had been very high on in the 2020 draft? 
would that have been enough to make him trade Bay on his, you know, just on its own? I don't think so. But how much of it was that opportunity versus versus how much of it was was the actual issues with Sadiq Bay? And there were some issues. You know, there's no doubt that the floor absolutely fell off from his defense. He went from serviceable to completely terrible. Uh, his perimeter shooting fell off to a degree, to a significant degree. Uh, he was just taking a lot of dumb shots. Who knows? No, it was just an odd situation where you had a guy who was who was a very valued piece of the future and was by all accounts, uh, you know, just a, a great teammate who was wise beyond his years, and then suddenly was just uh, became a terrible defender and was making stupid decisions on the court. But nonetheless, it happened very fast. But yeah, I see the frustration that Bay still provides some value to another team, and Wiseman is providing zero to this team, and is kind of frustrating when he's on the floor. And in some situations, Monty Williams is choosing to distribute minutes such even with Duran out distribute minutes such that you see Isaiah Stewart taking the backup minutes at center and Wiseman doesn't see the floor at all. We've seen some games where that's been the case. Uh, Kevin Knox, I just want to give a shout out to. Um, well, shout out. I hope you're listening to this podcast, Kevin. I doubt you are. Uh, I was, uh, you know, I was a fan of no- a fan of Knox last season. I'm not saying, you know, big fan of Knox. Here's what I like about Kevin Knox. I mean, he, you know, when he's shooting well, uh, he basically, he'll shoot the ball well, he cuts to the basket and he scores in transition. And those are valuable skills. And he does absolutely nothing that is outside of his lane. Uh, I mean, you'll rarely, if I don't know, ever see Kevin Knox do anything that he's not good at or uh, or just take a stupid shot or make a stupid drive that's going to get him just into a bad position. Uh, he'd be basically, he's given his job and he goes out uh, and, and works hard and does not deviate from it. You know, he has his issues in terms of defensive decision-making. He's definitely not like a, a guy who's going to be a smart playmaker on offense, but he's been good for the Pistons. You know, it's, uh, you know, if he can continue doing this, I'd like to see him somehow find a way to stay in the rotation. Uh, Monte Morris, whom we've heard is, well, we haven't heard this. This is what we know is now listed as questionable uh, for the next game. That would be a big boost to get him back. I don't know if they would boot Killian from the starting lineup right away. They'll please boot Killian from the starting lineup right away. Uh, that'll just be a boost. You'll have another guy who can create off the dribble, smart player, take away, you know, take on some of the playmaking load, shoot threes at a high level. Cool. That's going to be very helpful to this team, or very helpful to this lineup, rather. Uh, let's talk Killian, who has been improved in terms, you know, I think is better way of putting it. Yeah, he has been improved, no doubt. Of course, that's very relative, given that he was one of the worst players in the NBA on offense in his first three seasons. You know, granted, his first season was truncated, but the last two seasons, arguably the worst big minute player in the NBA on offense. So has been improved, still sucks, had a couple of big games. But here's the thing about Killian, uh, on a good team, he would not be getting minutes. And it would not be worth giving Killian minutes on a good team. Uh, you look at him as a handler where he's very limited. Yes, he's a, he's a very intelligent passer and he's a very gifted passer. He is not a guy who can break down defenses at all. He's, he's just going to make passes off the short driver or on the perimeter. He's not a guy who's, with, with teams who have better handlers who can do that, who can penetrate, break down defenses, also score at the rim. You're going to want that guy to be handling the ball. You're not going to put the ball in Killian's hands to do far less. And, of course, as a shooter, he's had some good games. He's still unreliable. He's still hesitant. Again, my belief about Killian, if he can become a high-volume, reliable three-point shooter, he can stay in the NBA. Barring that, I don't think he has a path to remain in the NBA. And yeah, right now, he is still a negative value player. He is less of a negative value player than he was before, but he is still a negative value player. So what do the Pistons need him to do? Well, it's not easy for him to get open in this lineup, uh, you know, especially in the starting lineup for, you know, for obvious reasons. Um, 
One of those reasons, however, is that he is not a fast mover off the ball. But when he gets the ball, it's like, don't pass the thing. Take the ball and shoot it, you know, and, and shoot it with confidence and, and shoot it with alacrity. And you've just got to be taking and making these open threes on volume. That's what's going to keep him in the NBA. I don't think there's anything else that's going to keep him in the NBA unless he abruptly makes a massive improvement in terms of his ability to attack off the drive. He has been accepting more contact. Uh, you know, that's kind of, for me, a little bit of a double-edged thing. It's a positive because now he's willing to drive into contact and he doesn't chronically avoid it. On the other hand, it's like, were you really just waiting to do this until your job was definitively in danger? Whatever. It's a positive development. Is it enough? No. He's still terrible at getting in the rim. And defenses still don't take him seriously. I guess at least at this point, they don't, they, they can't just know that he's going to avoid contact and treat him as even more of a joke off the drive than they, you know, than they do right now, even knowing that he's, he's willing to drive into some contact. Um, he's, he's definitely not going to drive at a rim protector. You see how the rim protectors treat him. They just stand still at the top of the restricted area. And that's that. They don't need to do anything else when it comes to Killian. They know he's not going to beat his defender. Uh, they know he's not even likely to attack the rim protector at all. He is treated as a joke off the drive. You know, it's one of his downsides. So once he, you know, if he is put into a secondary role in which he can be open for these threes and just play solid defense, though, again, I continue to think that, that Killian Hayes' defense is, is overrated by some. I think that he is a strong defender when the play slows down and he can just harass his opponent. He becomes substantially less strong when his opponent is an athletic player attacking him off the drive. Killian can certainly get beaten in those situations. And when it comes to situations in which he needs to chase explosive players around screens, forget about it. He's toast. So situationally strong, somewhat situation, in some situations he's somewhat weak. But overall solid enough. And if he can be solid enough on defense and also be a smart player on offense who can critically have that very important skill, particularly important for him, just given his his inability to really contribute all that much elsewhere on offense, to shoot threes on high volume and be reliable on these wide open catch and shoot threes, then he can stay in the league. I think that's the only role in which he will stay in the league. And I will say, no, there is no situation in which a team will just say, oh, well, Killian, we're just going to surround you with shooters. No good team is ever going to want Killian Hayes in his current state. No good team is going to look at a player who has major flaws and say, oh, well, maybe we can con- we can compensate for that. Teams don't want incomplete players. Teams want complete players. They don't want a team that they, they, you know, good teams, the least of all, want players who whom they will have to compensate for. And Killian, you really have to compensate for at this point, just in terms of his weaknesses as an attacker and his weaknesses as a shooter. That pull-up mid-range shot, useful to have, definitely not an end in itself. And he's uh, he's inconsistent on that anyway. But that's that's for almost any player, unless you're like Kevin Durant, that, that pull-up mid-range shot is just going to be a tool that you use when it's what's given to you and you can't get anything better. All right, finally, let's talk lineups. And uh, let's talk what could change, what could be done differently, because this starting lineup sucks. When is enough enough? What is the point that Monty Williams is trying to make in fielding this lineup that was doomed from minute one? And whether it's Bagley or Duran was doomed for minute one, excuse me, from minute one. It was an abomination, is an abomination that should never have seen the light of day in the NBA because it completely just ignores all the necessities of being a successful lineup in today's league. And it, it just ignores what a lineup needs to have in order to be successful, in order to have any hope of, of keeping up on offense. So let's go over briefly all the things that are wrong with it. Far too little shooting. Modern NBA offenses are built around generating open threes and hitting those at a good percentage. This lineup cannot do that. It doesn't even have a single uh, high-volume reliable shooter. 
one-on-one who's going to be able to get open off of the ball. Um, the lineup often runs two non-shooters, if not three. I mean, again, like the center, whether it's Bagley or Duran, can't shoot. Killian is not a reliable shooter. Asara is a complete non-shooter. Uh, Stewart's the only guy who is really able to, in that lineup, is really able to hit at a high percentage, and he often passes up shots, and he is not so much able to get open as that he only takes these shots when the defense leaves him open. Like Teams in the NBA will almost invariably avoid fielding even a single non-shooter on the perimeter, let alone two, let alone one uh, with the non-shooting center, let alone two with the non-shooting center. You see where I'm going with this. Then comes the spacing. I mean, this team has absolutely terrible spacing. Uh, for the same reason. I mean, the shooters don't need to be respected. There's not a single guy who is going to, you know, who is going to just be guarded habitually by defenses. There's, there is not a single guy who's like a strong shooter from, uh, from in terms of an, uh, an off-ball movement perspective as well. Uh, even Stewart, who can shoot, doesn't really contribute to spacing because he is very slow for by the standards of his position. He is not going to get himself open off the ball. He gets open if the defenses leave him open. And being able to hit that shot is still a big deal, but that really reduces his ability to space the floor. You also have far too little athleticism, and this is something I refer to as whatever. I mean, maybe maybe nobody else uses this term. Who knows? As athletic spacing, basically the ability to beat your opponent off the ball. This lineup has nobody who can meaningfully beat their opponent off the ball, except for perhaps Asar Thompson, who is not doing it on the perimeter because he's not a shooter right now. So it's very, very easy for the, for defenses to just keep up with the guys in the floor. It's very, very helpful to be able to run faster and jump higher than your opponents. In this case, just run faster, um, or at the very least, match them in that, which this lineup just cannot do, period. Makes it that much harder to wrong for defenses for guys to get open, uh, just to, to generate yourself good opportunities. As far too little creation, only Cade can do it, or Killian if you consider the odd mid-range pull-up jumper. And, you know, the spacing is, is one of the reasons why he's getting swarmed. The, uh, you know, the bad off-ball movement or the, the, the lagging athleticism I'm referring to, but also because defenses know that he's the only creator. Uh, you know, it's, it's just, it's a lineup that is set up to fail on offense. And it's a lineup that was guaranteed to fail on offense. It's a lineup that was unnecessary. Also, you had Alec Burks at, at the beginning, games one through five. He could have started... You could have started Ivy, even even if you think that, that what Monty is doing with Ivy makes sense and some kind of ambivalent on it. You know, you could have started Burks when Burks was out. You could have started Sasser. Burks is back. You could have started him instead. You could have started Sasser instead. He's still going with Killian. I don't know what Monty is trying to pull with this lineup. I don't know what point he's trying to make with this lineup. Enough is enough. The lineup is absolutely terrible. It was guaranteed from minute one to fail, and it has been an unequivocal failure, like an unambiguous, unequivocal failure. And, and just when is enough enough that you stop allowing this to happen? It has never been a necessity. The injuries have never made it a necessity. It has never been a good idea in any way, but for whatever, I don't know, culture building projects, what, whatever it is that, that Monty is, is, is trying to, to pull by fielding this lineup, whatever it is, the Pistons are 2-10, please pull the plug. Please pull the plug. I do not want to see another game start with Killian Hayes in the starting lineup. And again, just having that one non-shooter on the perimeter hurts. Asar is almost certainly going to remain in the starting lineup, uh, but you can make it a lot less bad. You're fielding two non-shooters in the starting lineup on the perimeter. And again, Kate has had his struggles as a shooter, but he's almost invariably attacking on the ball. So uh, it's less of an issue where uh, play finishing and in spacing are concerned. Uh, it's still an issue. He's got to be able to shoot his threes. 
but you're playing both Killian and Asar, two guys who are spacing liabilities. You're just compounding the issue that much. So if you're keeping Asar in the starting lineup, you can at least ameliorate it, and you could have ameliorated it from day one by putting a strong shooter in a shooting guard, whether that is Sasser or Burks. Could have done it, did not. That is an easy, immediate way that you can improve the starting lineup if you don't want it to be Ivy, who I think would also be uh, a, a major improvement in the starting lineup, uh, even you know, even if his defense remains questionable. I mean, just this off, this lineup is so completely and utterly, absolutely horrible and guaranteed to fail on offense. And it just doesn't have to be this way. And we'll see what happens in terms uh, in terms of lineup changes when, uh, you know, as the veterans return. Well, uh, Burks is already back. So as, uh, as Monty Morris and, and, and Boyan Bogdanovich return, though we still haven't heard anything about Boyan's timeline. And in fact, just as I'm recording this, we, uh, I'm seeing... Some news from Omari, Monty Williams, who said that he's considering excuse me, making changes in order to give Cade more spacing in the starting lineup. It's like, cool. I don't really understand. I think Monty Williams has a habit of being just deliberately obtuse with the media, of just uh, being kind of not the most genuine. Like when he says, for example, oh, well, Cade's attacking in the interior and they're swarming him. It's like, you know why that's happening. You know it's happening because you're putting him out there with lineups, particularly the starting lineup in which defenders have every incentive to swarm him. And in this situation where Mani says he's considering making changes to give Cade more spacing, it's like, you know why you're putting him out there with no spacing. So, uh, yeah, I think he's not the most genuine with the media. But hopefully we see that change in this upcoming game. And finally, just a couple more questions that were submitted by listeners. And like I've said, I always love hearing from you guys. You know, please be in touch, whether it's on on Discord, on uh, on Twitter. And by the way, I'm actually finally making an effort to start uh, producing some content on Twitter. So uh, be on the lookout for that if you haven't followed him uh, at To The Basket Pod. Uh, always love uh, hearing from listeners. Any feedback, ideas for, for future content, questions, you know, always love to hear from you folks. So any surprises from the Pistons or in the league? It's the only real surprise this season uh, thus far has been Marcus Sasser to an extent. He had a few really big games. Of course, that his shooting wasn't all that sustainable. He was shooting well over 50% from the floor and from three-point range. But just a guy who, uh, like, I expected that he would just be a shooting specialist. He has been better off the dribble and as a secondary playmaker than I expected. But beyond that, surprises, not really all that much for the Pistons thus far. And if we're looking elsewhere in the league, I think, well, number one, it's still early and things are a little bit wonky early in any given season. I would say that the Timberwolves have been a surprise. Uh, you have some strong talent there, and the Rudy Gobert trade, again, continues to be a bit of a befuddling thing. He is one of the strongest drop defenders in the history of the NBA. I mean, give the guy all the credit. He is a spectacular drop defender. And during the regular season, that's that's still quite valuable. Moving Carl Anthony Towns to power forward isn't quite as good. Carl Anthony Towns is still one of the most versatile big man scorers of all time, just in terms of all the things he can do. No, he's pretty weak on defense. Anthony Edwards has uh, has a superstar ceiling as a scorer, though I, I don't think in terms of uh, as a creator for others, he's you know quite up there as far as you know one of the leagues as the, these days even as a superstar scorer. You know, for the for the majority of guys, you've you know you're not playing a one man game. You're still it, it's more it's been become more and more important for for high volume creators to also be able to create for their teammates. And Anthony Edwards, I think, is is extremely talented as a scorer. Do I think that he's going to be the number one guy in a championship team? No. Would I love to have him the Pistons? Yes. If the Pistons had been number one in, in the 2020 draft, he absolutely would have been my pick. So the Timberwolves have been a bit of a surprise. 
Uh, I mean, you also have uh, Jaden McDaniels, who is one of the elite three and D guys in the league. Uh, they're a little bit short on depth, and Rudy Gobert in the playoffs is significantly less valuable than Rudy Gobert in the regular season because he is forced to switch and attack on the perimeter a great deal more. He is a decent switch defender, but you're pulling him out of the paint and uh, you know where he does his best work. And also, decent switch defender versus game-changing drop defender. There, his value drops. But uh, part of me is happy to to see the Timberwolves. Their fans are are pretty long-suffering, much like Pistons fans. Uh, so it's positive development over there. They started scorching hot on defense uh, to an extent that was never going to be uh, sustainable. They've fallen off a bit there. Their offense needs work. Do I think that they'll continue to be one of the top teams in the league? Mm, no. They're 8-3 and three right now. I think that as the season wears on, they'll probably end up in the middle of the pack. Uh, the Sixers, Tyrese Maxey has been fantastic. You know, they, they didn't skip a beat moving on from James Harden. I mean, he's just been great. Definitely a surprise there. Uh, Boston's lineup, which could have gone well or could have gone poorly, well, it's going to be largely dependent upon health, has been very good. A four-out lineup, excuse me, a five-out lineup in which everybody can shoot and, and very strong defensively as well. Uh, I mean, they've they've been one of the biggest winners. Uh, so good for them. The Mavericks are, are doing well. They're winning purely on the force of offense. Their defense sucks. Uh, can Kyrie stay healthy? There's a question. Uh, the Grizzlies, so the Grizzlies over the last couple of seasons have actually been pretty good, better without Rance than with him. They did this on the basis of still being able to run a functional offense, um, being considerably stronger on defense without him, and just being a team that was in general more than the sum of its parts. Uh, unfortunately, when you trade out Tyus Jones for uh, for Marcus Smart, Tyus Jones, who was a very capable, uh, not spectacular, but very capable lead guard, who who is just good at running an offense and very rarely turns the ball over. Um, it turns out your offense struggles a great deal more. Uh, missing Steven Adams and Brandon Clark, both Brandon Clark, not Brandon, um, really hurts. Uh, you know, when you have to, to start Xavier Tillman, who is, again, all respect to Stu, who I think is just a completely playing the wrong position, uh, is one of the very few starting power forwards who is worse than Isaiah Stewart at, at that position in, in a starting lineup. I mean, it's just a, it's a tough situation for the Grizzlies, but I think... Uh, what they did in the, in the offseason was ill-advised. Still, I didn't expect them to start 2-9. and nine. And those have been the surprises of the season for me. Uh, the Rockets as well, I suppose, but you just never know with a team that's that's elevating itself from, from very, very bad the season before to 6-3 and three after nine games, if that's realistically sustainable. Or I should say, likely to be sustainable. So uh, that would actually be it for the questions. I realized I answered the other one earlier in the episode. So that'll be it, folks, for this week's episode. As always, I want to thank you all so much for listening. I will catch you in next week's episode.